Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Vari Drennan, Professor of Healthcare and Policy Research. Thank you. I've been invited on your podcast because I've undertaken quite a lot of research into physician associates in the UK. Most of my work is around workforce for the NHS and social care, which, as you'll agree at this time, is one of the big issues. But the issues such as how many staff do you need or what sort of capabilities and capacities and competencies to run different types of services that are evolving. And that's one of the things the pandemic's really shown us is how we can evolve ways of working is, is, is really important. So I've been involved in four major pieces of research into physicians associates in England, two funded by the National Institute of Health Research, one looking at physician associates in primary care and one looking at physician associates in secondary care. The third piece of research looking at employers' views, GPs as employers' views, and the fourth funded was the evaluation of the physician associates uh, extension programme, which happened from 2016 to 2018. And I'm sure you're going to be hearing about that. Uh, Since then, I've also done other pieces of research looking at questions such as how hospital patients would like to have physician associates introduce themselves and that involved three physician associates as part of that research team. My interest in physician associates started back um, around 2000 when we had experienced in the NHS in the UK as a whole but particularly in England we had experienced the most awful workforce shortage where globally the staffing, uh, particularly of uh, nurses and doctors, were being sucked across the globe into the shortage that was happening in America. But basically, they were stripping other countries. I came to St. George's University of London in London, uh, late 2000s, at which point, in fact, 2007, at which point St. George's was developing its first physician assistant course. I was fascinated and became involved through doing part of the evaluation of the very early cohorts for the course team. But a part of that was that we were actually um, looking also at, well, who's going to employ these physician associates? They aren't registered. There's no regulation at this point. There, is, there are all sorts of things they can't legally do. They're very new. They're novel. And the idea comes from America, which in the context at that point in time was the question about whether you can import an idea from another country developed at a particular point in time and can you bring it into a different health system. So those questions as well. So we interviewed GPs at that point who were employing PAs to look at the issues of why, for what reasons, um, to look at identify any problems, issues, barriers, things that supported. So that from that, uh, what we understood was the sort of drivers for why GPs at that point were employing PAs. And it was very much about meeting government targets in terms of access, 
to general practice appointments in areas where there was real difficulty in recruiting GPs, recruiting practice nurses, getting anybody to work in primary care. So that was that was my that was our first piece of research around physician associates in England. And we went on from there to bid for monies to look at this in more detail. So the sorts of questions I'm interested in as a researcher, as a member of the public, as somebody who's been an NHS manager and a health professional, is basically framed by the same questions as you'd ask about how do you judge the quality of healthcare and the sorts of criteria you're interested in is, is it safe? Is this a safe thing to do to substitute this new group for what doctors are doing? Is this acceptable? Is this acceptable to patients, other professionals? Is it efficient? Is this a cost-effective way of doing things? Or does it raise questions that patients become double-handed? So they do a consultation with somebody first and then just get passed on to a doctor to then have the consultation basically repeated. So these sorts of questions come from understanding how you judge quality in health services, but also understanding how change in workforce has provided evidence for different sorts of new roles. The NIHR study in primary care, Physicians Associates in uh, Primary Care, was a mixed method study which we undertook between 2010 and 2013. There are many elements of that study where we undertook uh, national uh, systematic reviews. We undertook uh, interviews with national leaders about their views on introducing PAs. We undertook uh, a range of research activities, trying to document at that point what extent PAs were employed in primary care and the sorts of work they were doing and how they were received. And then we did um, very specifically a, a comparative observational study in six general practices that employed PAs and six general practices that didn't. And these practices were spread across a number of regions And the important bit I would perhaps flag up is the prospective comparative consultation record review that we did with a linked patient survey. And so what we aimed to do was um, compare the outcome and the costs of same day requested consultations by PAs with those of the GPs. And what we had were nearly a thousand Uh, anonymized records of consultations by PAs, which we compared with just over a thousand GP consultations. We were looking for the safety measure, the safety as a primary outcome. And the proxy that we used was the same one as was being used in previous studies. And so the proxy was unplanned reconsultation within 14 days. We had secondary outcome measures where we were looking at the processes within the consultation, such as how many tests were ordered and of what type, the number of referrals and the number of prescriptions. These are all ways of judging the impact on the wider healthcare system as well as the experience for patients. At the same time, we gave 
the patients going into these consultations, patient satisfaction surveys to take away with them, complete and post back to us. So this was all done in a way that was anonymised, but the way that the general practice was able, and not ours, was able to link their patient records with the patient survey numbers so we could actually match, match them up. When we looked, first of all, at our, our, these records in terms of comparing the patients that were seen by the PAs and the patients seen by the GPs, what we saw was that the PAs were more likely to be seeing a younger group of patients, more likely to be minor problems or symptoms. We had a method for classifying what the patients had attended for in terms of uh, a typology, as well as classifying whether the patient was somebody who has had quite complex underlying health problems as well. So we were able to say that for the presenting problem, the PA saw people, patients with uh, more minor problems and the GPs were seeing people classified as chronic or medically acute. And the GPs were also seeing a greater proportion of people with underlying complex problems uh, at that point. The outcome analysis was adjusted for plausible confounding variables, so age, the medical acuity of the problem, sex, number of times they'd attended recently, the number of problems, the number of chronic disease registers the patients were on, and socioeconomic deprivation. And what we found was that there was no significant outcome, no significant difference for reconsultation rates between the those that had seen PAs and those that had seen GPs. There was no difference between the processes that had happened within those consultations. And the one thing that there was a significant difference in the records is the PAs were more likely to record that they'd given advice um, than the GPs. We were able to compare the costs of the consultations because we had the length of time on the electronic records. And what we were able to see is that while the PAs consultation time was longer than the GPs because the salary costs for the PAs is different and lower for the GPs that per consultation the cost was lower than for the GPs but the one thing we weren't able to account for was supervision time from GPs as part of that. We also had a panel of independent GPs uh, review the records of all those patients who reattended with um, in an unplanned way for the same problem within 14 days to check, look and see whether the first consultation was appropriate and everything had been done and recorded as it should have been. They were able to, they were blinded as to who the patients had consulted, whether it was a PA or GP, they didn't know. And they judged, they were able to um, judge that for the first consultation, the index consultation, um, was appropriate for significantly more of the PA consultations than the GP consultations, which, of course, our GPs, when we unblinded them, had a long discussion about record keeping by GPs. And, and so you've just got to hold that on uh, in, in terms of the uh issues um, around doing using records as a way of, of judging these sorts of things. But we were also able to video some of our PAs in this research were willing to have their consultations videoed and with patient consent. And 
Um, I think it's uh, quite quite interesting. And then we had, again had an independent panel of GPs looking at videos where we cut and edited them uh, of PA consultations and of GP consultations to look at competency and clinical safety. I should just say that from the patient survey, we had just over 500 uh, responses, 53%. Nearly all of them were satisfied or very satisfied, and there was no difference between those seeing PAs and seeing GPs in terms of their response rate. And the one caveat around all of that is patient satisfaction surveys of general practice usually come back with very high satisfaction rates. So, um, but it tells you something in terms of it, it made no difference. And we were able to interview uh, a number of 30 patients by telephone in terms of their experience of those consultation with PAs. And what we found is that the, well, People had a high level of trust in those PA consultations and a high level of trust in their surgery. And they considered that the consultation was very similar or no different from that with the GP. What they actually had was a, a, a bit of a range in actually understanding who and what PAs were. So there were some people who thought they were doctors. There were some people who were clear that they understood what the PAs were, but they, they were wrong. They thought they were maybe doctors in training or American doctors. We had a whole range of, uh, of people, volunteer, PAs volunteering. Um, and But some of them understood absolutely who and what the PAs were. But I think that is an issue that people need to think about. And the Interesting part is when we ask them about would you be willing to see a PA again, the answer in overall was yes, but, and that but was about the patient themselves making a decision about to what degree this was a serious problem based on their experience of their condition and whether they it was more appropriate to go and see a doctor at that point or continue with the PA. And there were also patients who were clear that the their condition in the main was a chronic condition and that they had a rapport with the PA and they would continue trying to go and see the PA for continuity rather than go and see the GP. So uh, a range of uh, things but important issues to flag up. So what we were able to conclude at the end of this was that the processes and outcomes of PA and GP consultations for same-day appointment of the same case mix patients are similar at a lower consultation cost with the caveat around supervision. PAs were acceptable, effective, efficient and safe in complementing the work of GPs and that PAs may provide a flexible addition to the primary care workforce, but there had to be attention paid to the regulation and the issues of prescribing in order to fully maximise the use of PAs in uh, general practice. Did you find any difference in the rates of um, tests that PAs were ordering versus GPs or um, medicines that PAs were suggesting needed to be prescribed versus PAs? Were there any differences in, in the practice that way? No, there were no significant differences in the rates of tests being ordered 
in the uh, recommendations for prescriptions or the referral to other services. So the PAs were not impacting on the wider health healthcare system um, and costs in uh, in any way differently than the GPs. And likewise, in terms of internal referral within the general practice itself, the numbers of patients that were had seen a PA and then were referred to a, a GP were, were minimal for a second opinion uh, out of our sample. And, we were, uh, and that's when we've adjusted for age um, and all the other factors I talked about before. But the impact, there wasn't a significant difference. Should we move on to the PACER study? Yes, that would that would be that would be interesting to do. Um, so PACER was a study funded by the NIHR, which was to investigate the contribution of PAs in secondary care. At the point we completed our research in 2013, we made recommendations that uh, research should be conducted in other settings because we could see that physician associates were starting to be employed in greater numbers in hospitals rather than primary care. So we bid at that point for monies to look specifically at the contribution of PAs within the acute sector. And what we aimed to do was do the same sort of study as we've done in primary care um, with these different elements. So we started off by trying to look at who was employing PAs, where they were being employed in secondary care, to complement the census um, data that the Faculty for Physician Associates was, was collecting annually, which hugely valuable, and I hope everybody will continue to help complete that because it's a really important uh, set of evidence to describe who PAs are and where they're working and the sort of work they're doing. So we were looking at a survey of PAs, um, trying to understand exactly what they were doing in their shifts, what sort of shifts, what the teams were they were working with that would complement that data. We also uh, surveyed medical directors at that point in 2016 to understand whether they were interested in employing PAs, if they were or they weren't, what the barriers were or what was helping them. And of course, we got some surveys back, but you will remember that 2016 in the spring was the uh, time of the junior doctor's strike. So the fact that we got any responses at all, I'm still quite astonished by. But I think what that does demonstrate is that looking at workforce at this point was again just a backdrop that continues to be of great difficulty in NHS staffing um, and the well-being of NHS staff that has been going on for some time. So we did a systematic uh, review of the evidence about the contribution of PAs in the medical specialties where most PAs in uh, medical and surgical specialties, uh, where most PAs are employed in the UK, taking that data from the FPA census, so we understood. Um, and what we found, surprisingly, was very few research articles that uh, were looking at uh, acute medicine, emergency medicine, trauma and orthopaedics, published between uh, 95 to 2013. We only found 11 research papers. 
And what we could see is the PAs increased the capacity of the team, enabling uh, throughput, continuity and medical cover gains. But there was very little evidence about costs or health outcomes and um, real issues in that most of these 11 studies, quite often the PA had been added rather than substituted to a team. So it was and it was part of an overhaul of an entire system. Um, So really difficult to tease out. So these are some of the underlying questions about how you judge the impact of changing uh, a workforce that's team-based and particularly in acute care. It's very complex team-based groups. So adding one type of uh, professional or reorganizing and adding professionals really hard to tease out what the impact on patient experience or other or other outcome measures so we went on to look at the physician associates in detail in case studies in hospitals that were employing them in different parts of England and different types of hospitals, so tertiary hospitals, huge tertiary hospitals, small district general hospitals, uh, rural hospitals in rural areas, hospitals in the middle of inner cities, a real variety in terms of what the setting for both patients and the workforce were to be able to try and understand in real real world terms what, what the contribution of PAs were. Um, We did a number of things which involved interviews, observations, work logs by the PAs. Thank you to every PA that ever filled in a form about what they were doing. We looked at the documents. We asked for quantitative data and business cases to try and compare teams before and after the introduction of PAs. Unfortunately, we weren't able to obtain any of that. And we also did a comparison of anonymized patient records attended by PAs and foundation year two doctors in the emergency department. So mirroring what we've done in primary care. The sorts of reasons why these organizations have decided to employ PAs were not just about shortages of doctors in the most junior training grades, although it was a big issue because obviously that had impact on costs on locums, et cetera, et cetera. The concern about their doctors in training weren't able to do their training activities because they were being absorbed in the routine service provision. There were concerns that the patient workload within their services had increased to such an extent they had to find a better way to provide the work for uh, staffing, to provide good quality care and a real desire to improve patient uh, experience and the quality of care. And some of our um, trusts were under scrutiny by CQC for the quality of their care. So this is one of the solutions they were looking at. We found at this point that the PAs were mainly deployed to undertake inpatient ward-based activities, mainly in weekdays, uh, but not all, that the individual PA's roles were moulded by the team they were in, but also by their interests and the working closely with that team. So we found over time, 
PAs have been trained, for example, to take, undertake certain procedures uh, for a specialty, such as lumbar punctures, uh, echocardiograms, etc. And we're actually a source of um, training for other uh, doctors in training about those procedures because they had become it had become their specialty. A whole range of those, and I'm sure other PAs will talk about this in podcasts about the sorts of things they're doing. We found that patients and relatives had very positive views of the PAs and uh, talked highly of them. But again, there was a lot of confusion about what PAs were um, and mistaken for doctors. And we could see in these different trusts that in some trusts, you wouldn't know that PAs were employed and it wasn't very obvious. And in other trusts, you knew as soon as you walked through the doors that this was a trust that had a whole range of types of staff, including PAs, and material out for patients and relatives to understand that there were PAs working in this hospital alongside all the rest of the team members. Very interesting. And and we got lots of examples of the different ways PAs were introduced, for example, to patients. What we got overall from all our interviews was very positive views of the contribution of PAs. The reason for those positive views come from providing continuity, aiding patient flow, supporting patient safety, releasing doctor time for new, more complex patients, offer training activities, and supporting the training, the induction and training of doctors in training rotating between different specialties, different hospitals, um, and making uh, their lives a bit easier. I think one of the things I haven't perhaps mentioned is the impact on the doctors in training's workload, that actually some of them talk to us about how much easier and better their work lives were from having PAs as part of the team, and that they were a real asset and ensured that their working days were much better uh, when the PAs were there than when they weren't there. So I'm not going to talk in detail about the evaluation of the um, National Programme for the Expansion of Physician Associates. Two things I'd say from that evaluation with six other acute hospitals uh, across uh, England was very similar results to what we found in this NIHR study, but specifically linked to the well-being of doctors in training, we found in that study that there were in four of the hospitals reports that the numbers of exception reporting had reduced for uh, an exception reporting is when the doctors in training report that they have uh, worked extra hours or when their contract's been broken because they've had to do more work than what they contracted for and they're expected to do. And that the these hospitals had partly employed the PAs to try and help with numbers, um, but also that they specifically put them in areas where they knew there were numbers of higher exception reporting going on and they found a reduction. So I think that's really a really interesting piece of information um, in terms of PAs working in secondary care. I'm going to just add one last thing from our study, NIHR study, uh, with PAs um, in secondary care, where we did a very specific comparison 
a retrospective record review comparing consultations that were first seen by PAs or foundation year two doctors in the emergency uh, departments. And the key thing I, I think I want to flag up from that, so we did something very similar that we did in primary care, and we were looking at reattendance within seven days, and we found no difference for patient cases between PAs or foundation year two doctors in training. We found that the patients that were seen by a PA first were more likely to have a shorter stay in the emergency department by 35 minutes, which may be of interest to those thinking about the staffing in these sorts of areas. And we adjusted for age, for sex, whether the person was admitted, um, as well as clustering for by individual clinicians. But we weren't able to take account of things like staffing levels or working practices. And of course, any of you who've worked in an ED or been a patient in an ED and just sat there and watched what goes on, you're very conscious that this is a team provision of a service in, in many ways. So um, I think I'd probably just like to finish by saying I'm really pleased to be able to talk on this podcast. As you can hear, I've got too many things to talk about and I could talk about it for a very long time. I've been very privileged to lead these research projects and I could talk about the others such as the introducing PAs in, in hospital. Happy to do that on a separate one and with the PAs who were led the research. I think the important thing is over my journey is that we have increasingly managed to involve PAs as co-applicants, as part of the research team, and not just people being researched or on an advisory group. And I think that's fantastic for most PAs in the future who are interested in research. It will be about clinical subjects. It will be about the education and professional development of PAs. But if any of you are interested in questions about workforce, about recruitment, retention, about contribution, please do get in touch with me and let me know. And I can also help direct you to other people who are doing research in this area. Thanks so much, James. Barry, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Physician Associate Podcast.